Well, of course, I've already given it away. We are going to talk about covenants this morning as we're looking at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 through 13. We'll read the passage, and we'll get into a lot of detail, but, you know, just something considering as we, as we start out here, something to focus on. People tend to think that by rejecting God, that they're opening a door to great freedom. You know, they're not under his rules or his stipulations, that if they're not committed to God themselves, then they're free from any of his restrictions. But one thing they're not free from is consequences for their own sin. And here's the deal. We're not very good at keeping promises and commitments. So what we really need is a promise-keeping God who loves us more than we deserve, and that's what we have in the New and Better Covenant. All right, so let's turn our attention now. Let's dive in here and see what the author begins to say about that in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's the word of the Lord. Lord our God. You are rich in mercy, steadfast in your faithfulness to your people. I ask God that you would make that plain to us through my preaching this morning in a way that can be understood and felt and experienced and realized in the lives of your saints gathered here. Not just today, but this week and next week and throughout the rest of our lives. God, I realize I, I have nothing. I feel my lack as I stand here my inability to move or persuade anybody. I know how far short I fall of showing the beauty of your word and the power of your gospel and the magnificence of Jesus. I'm trusting you, Holy Spirit, to do only what you can. Christ must increase, but I must decrease. I pray, Lord, that you'd have your way with us, with your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's easier to break promises than it is to break habits. Have you ever had a bad habit that you tried to kick? Ever promised that you would quit that bad habit but then went back to it? That could be something as simple as biting your nails or picking your nose. Or it could be something as serious as, you know, alcohol and drug abuse. 
But the habit God's people always had was spiritual adultery. They were covenant breakers. God made a covenant with them, and the covenant wasn't the problem. His people were. God always had been faithful. It's his people who were constantly being unfaithful. We see that page after page. God was always holding up his end of the bargain, but his people weren't. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Because his people didn't hold up their end of the bargain, because they couldn't do it, he did it for them. This is why the author says here, Jesus has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises, verse 6. The author's been showing them repeatedly how Jesus is a better high priest in in recent chapters, chapters 5 through 7. And he says if he's a better high priest, then there has to be a, a new covenant, and that new covenant has to be a better covenant. And that makes sense because if the first had been faultless, he says, verse 7, there would have been no need for a second. If it was good to go, if that old covenant had been good to go, God's people would have never needed to look forward to a second. But we see the old covenant wasn't faultless. Not that the covenant itself was bad. Remember, God's plan of redemption is an unfolding plan that we see progressing as we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But there was fault in the old covenant, and the fault wasn't God's, it was man's. Verse 8 says, for he finds fault with them when he says, and then what he says, drawing from Jeremiah chapter 31, is a day is coming when God would establish a new covenant with his people. Not like a covenant I made with their fathers, he says, verse 9, for they did not continue in my covenant. Now, two, two things to point out here real quickly, one from their perspective prior to Christ and one from our perspective post-cross and resurrection. They knew a covenant was coming. They were told to look forward to it. That's why he says in verse 7, he signals to that, that they were supposed to be looking forward to a second, that what they had was not all there was or ever would be. There was something better coming, a better covenant, and Jesus brought it. So that's the first thing. They knew that a new and better covenant would be coming. Now, from our perspective, we know a new and better covenant has already come. It's really important for us to realize that. Because if we're going to be a joyful and grace-filled people, living lives of gratitude toward God, we have to realize that people then look forward to the day we live in now. You ever really wrapped your mind around that? They longed for the day we live in now. They wished they could have had what we enjoy. Jesus said so himself in John chapter 8. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. There was a promise of a new and better covenant they were to be expecting. He talks about that there in verses 10 through 12, still quoting from Jeremiah 31. In this new covenant, God's laws wouldn't just live on tablets of stone anymore. They would be in the minds and hearts of his people, from the least of them to the greatest. They would all know God and his mercy, and he promises he would remember their sins no more. We'll come back to that. That's a big one. But the problem with the old covenant 
wasn't that it was wrong or it was bad. It was that the people it was for were bad and they couldn't keep it. So what's, going, what, what, what's God going to do about that? Isn't that the question? What's God going to do about it? What's going to be better about the new covenant? And here it is. You ready? God isn't going to just change the covenant. He's going to change his people. He's going to hold up their end of the bargain for them by sending his son to obey in their place. He's going to get rid of their sin problem altogether so that they'll no longer be held at an arm's length from him. He's going to do that by sending his son to shed his own blood on their behalf. And that blood isn't going to just be symbolic like it was in the old covenant. No, it's actually going to be applied to his people. It's going to actually remove their sin. It's going to actually reconcile them to God. It's going to actually change us from the inside out. And because the new covenant is going to actually do all of those things, what need is there of the old? That's the point. Verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant is, is obsolete. It's not that it's contradictory to the new. It's, it's just complete and it's fulfilled. It's served its purpose. I had a seminary professor put it this way. It's like a blueprint in a house. Okay? You have the blueprint in the house. Well, the house that you build better go along with the blueprint. They need to match. They need to be in agreement with one another. Right? And the old and new covenant do. They agree with one another. But once you have the house built, what do you need the blueprint for? You, you can't sleep in the blueprint. You can't invite people over to the blueprint. Once you have the house built, what do you need the blueprint for? You don't. That's the message the author's getting across. So the main idea of the sermon and the passage this morning is this. This is what the author's trying to convey to his audience. What got you here won't get you there. You can imagine it's like having, a, like having a getaway car. And this is probably a ridiculous illustration, y'all. Just bear with me, okay? But if you've ever seen a good heist movie, like a bank heist movie, there's a getaway car, right? And the first getaway car is just how they get away from the bank or whatever to the other getaway car, right? They have to leave that one car behind. They abandon that car and hop in the other one so that they can get away and throw the cops off their scent. You got to ditch the old car once it's served its purpose, right? You can't stay in that car. You've got to hop in the new one if you want to live, as it were. What got you here won't get you there. That's the author's message and the main idea, but I want to amend that a little for us because that's true for them, but that's not true for us. What got you here, Christian, will keep you here. What got you here will keep you here. That's what we need to get from this. Remember, we don't have the same history and the same track record and the same ties that they had to the old covenant. We got to skip the line. Uh, you think about Jesus, uh, the, the parable about the vineyard workers, right? Some show up early in the morning, they're working all day. Some show up, you know, uh, partway through the day and get hired. And then there's some people that show up the last hour and they all get paid the same. That, that's us. We showed up the last hour got paid the same. 
These people, the book of Hebrews is too, they were formerly Jews. And going back to Judaism is looking pretty attractive to them right now at the moment. They need convincing that what got them this far will not get them all the way. They need to be convinced, and we need to be convinced, that Jesus has already gotten us all the way. That what got us here will keep us here. We have a new and better covenant enacted on better promises. <clears throat> We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what's new and better about the new covenant, and that'll be the point of the sermon. But first, we've got to understand covenants better. Before we can talk about what's better about the new, we have to have a better understanding about the old covenant and what a covenant even is. So I suppose if you're taking notes, you could make this into two points. Understanding covenants better and understanding what's better about the new covenant. I don't think I could possibly overstate this, but understanding covenants is the key to understanding the Bible. They're that important. You know, some people might say, well, I thought having a relationship with God is the key to understanding the Bible. Okay. Well, how does God say he relates to people? How does he describe his relationship to his people? God relates to his people covenantally. So let's start with a 30,000-foot view of this before we get into the weeds some, okay? This is the worth the price of admission right here. Okay, so don't miss it. We have what is called a bicovenantal structure. Okay, bi meaning two, two covenants. This is the meta narrative of all of Scripture, by the way, the overarching theme of the whole thing. And if you get this, it really starts to make things more clear to you. Two covenants, okay? The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. In the beginning, there was a covenant of works. God made man, he put him in a garden, he gave him three things. He gave him a will to obey, a work to do, and a woman to love. And if you've been in our men's Bible study recently, you, you, we've been hearing that a lot. The guys have been talking about this a lot. But God gave man a will to obey, and not his own will, right? God's will. He was to obey God's will perfectly. If he did, God promised Adam life. If he didn't, obey God's will perfectly, he promised Adam death. That's the covenant of works. Did Adam keep the covenant of works? We all know he didn't. He disobeyed God. And so that path to life has been cut off for all of mankind. Because mankind's representative, the first man, literally burned that bridge for us. There's no way back. We can no longer get to God by perfect obedience because not only did Adam not obey God perfectly, sin entered the world as a result, and so now we're born in it. We're born in sin. And so none of us has obeyed God perfectly, nor can we. So the way God chose to relate to us, the way he chose to relate to man, to his creature that he made in his own image, is gone. You feel that? Cut off, gone, bridge burnt, game over. How's God going to respond now? How will he relate to us now? 
Isn't that the question? He could just not relate to us, couldn't he? He could just not relate to us at all anymore. He could just leave us in our sin and just punish us for it. That's what he could do. And he'd be right to do it. Instead, he inaugurates a new and progressively unfolding covenant of grace. There's a progression in his revelation of this covenant of grace to us. It comes about in stages, okay? Primarily through the covenant he made with Noah and then Abraham, then Moses, then David, and now the new covenant in Christ. But here's the important thing to get. It's always been the only way anyone has ever been saved, this covenant of grace. No one has ever been saved by their works. Anyone who has ever been saved has only been saved by the works of Jesus through the covenant of grace. And if you lived back in Old Testament times, you're always looking forward to the next season of the covenant of grace series. And here and now from where we sit, we look back on reruns of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That was the final chapter and the last episode. So what we're calling the new covenant here is the final stage of the covenant of grace. It's the most glorious manifestation of God's promises in Jesus, who said, it is finished. The whole sum of God's promises have now been seen and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no covenant after us, so that's why the author can essentially say what you got, what got you here won't get you there. We've come as far as one can get in Jesus. Praise the Lord. There was an expiration date on that previous installment of the covenant, though. If we're looking to Jesus as the complete fulfillment of God's covenant of grace, we've got all we'll ever need. So there's the big bicovenantal view of understanding covenants better. Getting into the weeds a little now, a covenant is like a contract, okay? You can sort of think of it that way, but it's stronger than a contract. And it's initiated by the greater to the lesser. It comes from a position of authority, and it comes with expectations. It says, this is what I have done for you. This is what I expect of you. This is what I will do for you if you do what I expect of you. And this is what I, I will do to you if you don't do what I expect of you. Right? And you, 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 what should just be ringing in your ears right now is in Exodus when God starts the, the, the Ten Commandments, the preamble to the Ten Commandments, as it were, where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage and slavery in the land of Egypt. And then he goes on to give what we know are the Ten Commandments. So they're stipulations, they're, pr they're promises of blessing and curses. Now here's the deal. That's how God relates to his people. When we think of covenants and contracts, when we hear about that kind of stuff, it sounds so impersonal sometimes, I think. Sometimes people will be like, I don't know. It's not the way I like to think of God. Well, I don't think he cares. That's the way he deals with people. We have to recognize we are people of our time. We're all conditioned to some extent 
by the time and culture we're a part of. And the time we're in is a very sensory time. It's very emotionally driven. Let me give you an example of what I mean. How often do you say, for instance, just in, you know, not talking about religious things, just, just in life, how often do you say, I feel, when what you really mean and should say is, I think. This is something I've caught myself doing before that I've tried to knock it off, right? Say things like, I feel like it would be better for me to do X than Y. No, you don't. You think you should do something different. Ladies, you ever told your husband, I just, I feel like you're not listening to me. No, you don't. You think he wasn't listening to you. And unfortunately, you're probably right. You say, I, I just, I feel like if things were different, if I, I, I feel like I'm just not in a good place right now. What you really mean is, I think I need to change. So say that. Be honest about it. Feeling can be so non-committal. Thinking is. And so are covenants. We live in a time where everything has to appeal to us in a feeling kind of way. And so we're tempted to think this idea of contractual agreements and obligations and the legality stuff of covenant relationship with God is something uh, dry and impersonal. But if you think about it, it's not that way at all. There is legal stuff about it that we have to acknowledge and understand and accept, but here's the deal. See how you feel about this. The God of the universe contractually obligated himself to you forever. God has bound himself by covenant to his people. That's a pretty big deal. There's nothing impersonal or dry about that at all. That's a firm and unbreakable relational commitment that he's made to us. That's a marriage. There's a reason a marriage includes a ceremony and all the legal stuff. It's binding. There's a legal dimension that's there but it's not there for legality's sake. It's there for the relationship's sake. Terms and conditions apply to relationship with God. That's what covenants communicate. There are blessings and curses. And there's signs, too. There's signs of, of being in covenant with him. Circumcision in the Passover in the Old Testament. Lord, Lord's Supper, and, uh, baptism and Lord's Supper in the New Testament. So covenants are how God relates to his people. And what they communicate is this. This is at the heart of covenants. They will be my people, and I will be their God. The signs and seals say this is how you'll know, right? That's what's at the heart of covenants. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And there are conditions to the deal. And verses Eight and following the authors, pointing back again to Jeremiah 31, saying, this is now the deal. What Jeremiah said would be the deal one day is the deal today. Work back from the bottom at verse 12 with me, okay? Just for the fun of it. Work back up from bottom to top, starting at verse 12 to make sense of this. Because he has been merciful toward the iniquities of his people, 
Because he remembers their sins no more, they all know him. They are his people and he is their God and his laws are written on their minds and their hearts. What an incredible promise. A promise that has already come to pass, that is true. Now, you know, keep in mind at the time Jeremiah wrote this, things were out of control. You read Jeremiah? Good gracious. The northern and southern kingdoms were divided. Judgment was coming upon God's people from rival nations, wicked rival nations. And it was hard to imagine for them that God's grace and his promises that they'd been hearing about so long would ever actually come about. But here, he reemphasizes they most certainly will. And this whisper of this new covenant was with the same people he'd already committed himself to. It wasn't for some other people. It was for his people, Israel. Meanwhile, he's allowing their enemies to invade them in order to discipline them, yes. And hard times are coming upon them, yes. But he's not turning his back on them. He's not divorcing his wife. This is a recommitment, a re-upping, a rejuvenation of the marriage covenant with his bride. And don't miss this, y'all. You are the new Israel. The church is not God's mistress that he left his wife for. It has always been the true Israel, the true church. Because there's one covenant of grace that's unfolded throughout the Bible and it's reached its culmination in Christ. So like I said before, it wasn't that the old covenant was faulty in the sense that it was wrong or it was bad. It just couldn't accomplish what it promised because something had to happen in the people it was for. And here's what the author says. That happened. Christ has come. God's people were an unfaithful bride. They were constantly committing spiritual adultery. And what God did is he pursued his bride even when she was unlovely and wayward and died to redeem her. Let me say this. If you've ever wondered if God would abandon you, I would encourage you to look carefully at this passage again. Look at how God deals with his people covenantally. That means he doesn't love you because of how he feels about you today. He doesn't love you today because of what you did yesterday and he won't forsake you tomorrow for what you do today. He loves you because he pledged his love to you. He bound himself to you has made promises to you that he will not and cannot break. You are his forever. Hopefully we understand covenants a little better now and see the beauty of how God chooses to relate to us as is redeemed. It's not at all impersonal, is it? When you think about what's behind all that and what it costs, 
There's nothing impersonal, impersonal about that at all. It's all very personal. It's very intimate. But let's see now what's new in the new and better covenant. We've touched on some of this already, but distilling it down a little bit, looking at verses 10 through 12, what's new in the new and better covenant is new power, new people, and a new priest. In the new covenant, people have the law in their minds and written on their hearts. In the old covenant, we still had the covenant of grace. It wasn't a covenant of works. It, it was a season in the series of the show, the covenant of grace, remember? But it was very much an out here, external kind of covenant. It was an out here, external kind of thing. All the laws, all the rituals, it was all behavioral and not so much experiential and relational. It's not like, you know, you can't get this wrong though. It's not like it was law keeping then versus not law keeping now. It's not the old covenant is about law keeping and the new covenant isn't. God has never stopped caring about the obedience of his people. He cares about his law being kept. But look at what he does here in the new covenant. He doesn't say, I'm going to change my law. He says, I'm going to change you. My people are going to have the power to obey me. This promise was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was realized in the New Testament. Let me just show you an example of each quickly. And Ezekiel 36 says, And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unclean, uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. Here we go. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's the new power promised. Where's the new power delivered? Has this happened? You think about Acts chapter 2, right? Jesus is already, he, he's died, he's been buried, he rose from the dead, he's been walking around another 40 days before he ascends into heaven. He finally is, he <laughs> promised that his power would come. And then Acts 2 says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then here's the instruction they're all given. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Holy Spirit comes with power. It was prophesied in the promise, and it was delivered. And here's why that's important. The law doesn't change our attitude toward it does. God's law never changes. So what changes in the new covenant is us. 
a new power. God's after a love for obedience, a love for his law. We needed the power to do that, and he's given it to us in the new covenant. The obedience God desires comes from a change in us, a change of heart. And that's what he does in the new covenant. New covenant, new power. New people too. Verse 11 says, they shall not teach, so on and so forth. They shall all know me. There's going to be more people making up the covenant people of God who actually believe. And so what's that mean? Well, consider, are there people in church today who are lost, who aren't genuinely saved? Yes, of course there are. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many warnings packed in this very book of Hebrews about apostasy. That's a real thing. It happens, but not like it was before. There's going to be a less converting of people within the community of God because people aren't just going to be identified as belonging to God externally, but internally. And it's not just going to be those of Jewish birth. The Gentiles are coming in. All peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. It's an expanding covenant. It's still exclusive. It's still only through Christ. But it's wide open to the whole wide world. That's new. That's something new about the new and better covenant. And all of that is only possible, of course, because of a new and better priest. Verse 12. And that's the kicker. I will remember their sins no more. Sins are finally, fully forgiven. That's new for sure. The earthly priests ran themselves ragged. We've talked about that, haven't we? As we've contrasted Jesus as our great high priest and the earthly priests, they ran themselves ragged. They couldn't slaughter enough animals. There never seemed to be enough blood to cover their sin problem. There is now. Christ, as our high priest, offered an acceptable sacrifice and his own blood was enough. Finally, sins have been atoned for. God can say, I remember their sins no more. Do you believe that, John? Well, both of you, two for one right there. Do you believe that, that he remembers your sins no more? It's hard to believe, isn't it? Because you do, you still remember, don't you? But it's done. It's not like it never happened. It happened. Your sin happened. And it's not like it went unpunished. It was punished. Jesus took the punishment for it. And not some of it, all of it. And because he has, your crimes can't be tried twice. Isn't God's justice good? Mm -hmm. 
We know because John tells us in one of his letters, God is love. And love, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, keeps no record of wrongs suffered. Even though you do, love keeps no record of wrongs suffered. It's not, it's not like that God forgives and forgets your sin because he doesn't care, he lets it slide. It's because Jesus took it. And if he took it, it can't stick to you anymore. God doesn't look on you in judgment anymore. Have you ever had to forgive someone of something pretty awful? Think about it. Let's pretend I'm talking about you for a minute and not the person next to you. Have you ever had to forgive somebody for something pretty awful? How easy was it to forget? That's harder, isn't it? And the reality is, until it's forgotten, it's not really forgiven. Someone's going to take issue with me saying that, and that's fine. I'm just telling you. Until your heart changes toward that person and you're not holding that against them anymore, you saying you forgive them is just hot air. It's a step. But it's step one. The final step is letting them off your hook completely. And because Jesus died for you, that's the kind of forgiveness you received. Jesus died for you, for you to be forgiven. It's complete. The offense has been atoned for completely. So as far as your relationship with God goes, it's literally as if it never happened. Praise God for his grace and his mercy that Jesus' atonement for our sins causes him to remember them no more. Let that sink in, y'all. If you've got a picture of a God who says he's forgiven you, but every so often he gets in the mood to go get out his diary and look back at all the times you grieved him, you've got the wrong God. There's a lesson in that for someone here this morning. I don't know, I don't know who needed to hear that. What I do know is I've been there, and I'm not special. Surely someone here knows they're only part of the way there in forgiving someone who has wronged them. And you can look to Christ and the forgiveness that you've received and love that person enough to keep no record of wrongs suffered. There's freedom in that. You have the power to do it. That's something we as the people of God in the new covenant have the power to do because our new priest accomplished that for us on the cross. This new and better covenant is so good, y'all, because it's the last installment of the covenant of grace where God himself has kept the conditions he gave the first man. And by faith, we come out from under the curse of Adam and we're adopted into God's family with Christ as our head, as our representative. And what his obedience and sacrifice does for us is it actually applies the benefits of that redemption to us. 
so that it actually changes us. Whatever inability we had before, we now have the ability. Whatever power we lacked before, we now have. Everything that was wrong with our wills and our desires has been changed. The old man has died. Behold, the new has come. All things are being made new. Believing in Jesus, as we all claim to here, means believing what he's done. And when you do, when you see him enlarged to show detail, as the book of Hebrews does such a fine job, the way that it presents him to us, when you see into all the nooks and crannies of God's unfolding plan of redemption, you realize it's more magnificent and more glorious than you may have realized at first. And when your affections for him are stirred up, when that knowledge migrates south and makes a home in your heart, you're never the same again. That's what's new and better about the new and better covenant. It changes God's people. It changes us. Because Jesus came as the second and better Adam, perfectly represented us as man before God, and offered himself as the only acceptable sacrifice due for our sins, redemption has finally been accomplished and applied. So leave here this morning with your head held high. Not in some proud or haughty way. But in a confident, rest assured sort of way. Know that what Christ has done for you is real. This is not some imaginary thing. And we're not like the, the, the Old Testament Jews where we're still waiting on something else later. It's we're, This is it. Till you die and go to be with the Lord, this is it. These benefits of redemption we're talking about, God's transforming grace in your lives, this is not theoretical, and it's not only for some Christians. God says, you are my people, and I am your God. Before you can act like it, you need to believe it. Take God at his word. Believe his promises. Expectantly pray for his work in your life and see if he doesn't just astonish your socks off. Let's pray. God, your word is a gift, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We're so grateful to live in the time that we do where we have your complete revelation. We have the power of your spirit working in us. That because Jesus has done what we could not, and because he mediates a better covenant we're now in, we can do what no one was able to do before. Lord God, help our unbelief. We love you because you first love us, and it's my prayer for your saints at King's Church that we would all know that love so deeply and believe it so wholeheartedly that you would do a work in us and those around us that is indescribably
pure and unmistakably for your glory. Lord, we love you and thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. Increase our faith that we would believe and expectantly pray those promises. In Jesus' name, amen.